0: Grace and peace to you this Lord's Day from the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. I'm Dr. Baron Mullis and I'm the pastor of this congregation and along with our liturgist, the Reverend Megan Decluse, our Director of Music Andrew Sin, and all of our musicians, I am delighted to welcome you to our service of worship. Before we move into the body of the service, I'd just like to give you a a quick update. Over the next few weeks, you will see us transition from this pre-recorded worship into a truly live stream of our worship service. And it will look a little different when that happens. Uh, There's a little bit of work yet to be done, but we're excited about it and looking forward to it. And as always, you can check check our website for updates on protocols to register for in-person worship should you wish to worship in person and otherwise to engage in the life of the congregation. With this noted, let us join together in our responsive call to worship. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone.
1: Let us confess our sin, confident in God's love for us. Eternal God, your love for us is relentless. It knows no beginning and no end. We cannot earn it. You do not give it to us because of some intrinsic merit, nor is it conditional. Your love is a free gift. So why do we fail to live as though this were true? We harbor grudges rather than forgive. We hold our resources rather than share. We descend into anxiety rather than trust in your good providence. Forgive us, we pray, and remind us always of your enduring, relentless love. These prayers we offer through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. As your friend in Christ, I remind you that you have been restored to the grace of God and can believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Our first scripture reading comes from the 23rd Psalm. Hear these likely familiar words. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long." Here ends our first reading.
0: Our Gospel lesson is taken from the sixth chapter of Mark's Gospel narrative. It begins at the 30th verse, and if you're looking closely at the lectionary, you will notice that the lectionary has it chopped up quite a bit, various verses from various sections of the chapter. Uh, The gospel writer Mark really does not intend for us to do that. When Mark puts stories together, Mark intends them to be read together. So I'm going to deviate from the lectionary, and then I'm going to add the rest of the passage back in. So we'll begin at the 30th verse, and we'll continue through the 56th. Listen for the word of God to us today. The apostles gathered around Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. He said to them, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they have had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a deserted place by themselves Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they hurried there on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. As he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place. The hour is now very late. Send them away so that they may go into the neighboring villages and surrounding country and buy something for themselves to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. They said to him, Are we to go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves have you? Go and see. When they went and found out, they said, five and two fish. And then he ordered them to get all of the people to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the two loaves, five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and he divided the two fish among them all. And all ate, and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces, and of the fish, those who had eaten the fit loaves numbered five thousand men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After saying farewell to them, he went up to the mountain to pray. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. When he saw they were straining at the oars against an adverse wind, he came towards them early in the morning, walking on the sea. He intended to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for all who saw him were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, "'Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid.' Then he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Genesaret and moored the boat. When they got out of the boat, people at once recognized him and rushed about that whole region and began to bring the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages or cities or farms, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might touch even the fringe of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Join me now, if you will, in a word of prayer. Let us pray together. Almighty, eternal God, Grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Clergy often joke about the relentless return of the Sabbath, By this we mean that no matter what is going on in the world, or frankly even in our own lives, every seven days a sermon is called for, hence the relentless return of the Sabbath. Organists and choirs experience the relentless return of the Sabbath also. Come to think of it, so do our ushers and our deacons, etc. It takes a lot of people to make this place work, and the Sabbath does roll around every seven days. If Perhaps you have been dragged here at the behest of your parents or of a spouse. Maybe you, too, think you are experiencing the relentless return of the Sabbath. Once I was waiting to process into the sanctuary of the church I was serving for the convocation of one of our denominational seminaries, and the president of the seminary and one of the trustees were joking about the trustees' impending retirement. No more relentless return of the Sabbath, the president said. No, the trustee said. But then with a twinkle in his eye, he said, But it really, really, it has been a joy. To which the president replied, Relentless joy? In truth, the return of the Sabbath was, for me, during our long winter, one of the ways that I stayed Grounded in time, as I wrote to you. (coughs) The quality of relentlessness is sometimes a virtue. It denotes reliability, things on which we may come to count. Uh, The quality of relentlessness can also be a bane. We have learned perhaps unwanted lessons on patience in the face of this relentless virus this year. And there are other relentless forces, gun violence in our city for one, climate change for another, racism for yet another. We seem at times to be in a relentless, sea of partisanship, a condition that most Americans bemoan, and yet it seems nonetheless to be practically permanent, relentless, if you will. There are so many things that come at us so quickly, so unrelentingly at times. It puts me in mind of that desert about which we read today. The word that we read as desert in today's scripture is the same word that we encounter elsewhere in Mark as wilderness. It's the same word in Greek. Now you remember what the wilderness is from our study of of the Bible. The wilderness denotes a place of fear. It's a place of temptation, of testing, to see whether we will settle for what we know to be wrong. Now the wilderness, while it is a place denoting fear, is not so frightening when we can keep it at bay. But what about when the wilderness seems shockingly close? It's so easy to want to shrink away And yet when we see people in the wilderness, the call placed upon Christians is to be the body of Christ, and that call is relentless. Jesus seemed to know this, having compassion for his disciples. He tried to pull them aside to a quiet place where they might at least have leisure to eat their supper, but the crowd followed the boats on foot until they landed. The demands on Jesus' people have always been relentless. Indeed, in Mark's gospel, the demands on Jesus are relentless throughout. Early on in the story, Jesus cautions those he heals and those from whom he casts out demons that they are to go and to tell no one of what he has done. And that begs the question, why not? Surely this is good news. Surely he would want people to know Scholars call this the messianic secret, and much has been made about it through the years. Uh, People wonder whether Jesus tried so hard to keep the lid on his ministry in the opening chapters of Mark for any number of reasons. It appears at times that Jesus might just as well be engaged in back alley dealings when it comes to the miracles in Mark's gospel narrative, because constantly he says to those whom he has healed, those from whom he has cast out demons, go and tell no one, tell no one. If you were to read the entirety of Mark's gospel, as our TNT group did this last spring, you'll notice that no one ever obeys him when he tells them to go and tell no one. They run immediately and tell everyone. Now, it it could be nothing more than Jesus is aware that once the word gets out about his extraordinary power, there will never be a quiet moment again. Once folks get that he is the source of healing and wholeness, it seems that he will never have a moment to himself again. The word gets out. It always does. When I was working probably, gracious, 20 years ago now in Indianapolis, I was working with the mission pastor at the Second Presbyterian Church there. And they had a food pantry in this marvelous church. They had set a schedule for food distribution, and there was a set list of products that would be provided to those who came to their food pantry. Once, though, I began wondering about what happened to the folks that needed food in between our pantry days at the Second Church. After I wondered this out loud one day, my friend, Ray, who was the mission pastor, replied, Baron, there are places where folks can go, and I want you to know we support them. But we learned the hard way that if we didn't set boundaries, we would have a line stretching all the way down Meridian Street. Word, always seems to get out. One does wonder with this whole say-nothing-act-casual approach that Jesus seems to take to the miracles in the early parts of Mark, whether perhaps he sees the handwriting on the wall, whether he knows what will happen if word gets out to the larger community of his acts of power Perhaps this whole secret in Mark, this whole messianic secret, is Jesus doing nothing more than demonstrating to his disciples that it is okay from time to time to have some boundaries to borrow from modern parlance. And today's lesson certainly does seem to show the consequences of Jesus' fame in the countryside. But I think it's so much more than that. God's people... In every age have looked for comfort, for healing, and for wholeness in answer to the problems of the world, in answer to the pain of the world. That pain, those problems, seem at times to be so relentless that it almost leaves one to wonder whether at times even Jesus wanted to push the pain away. A cursory glance at our story today does seem to bear out all the reasons we've heard yet to keep tight boundaries around his time. But there's more to this story. Indeed, there's a great deal more. I'm fond of novelist Reynolds Price's observation that Mark's version of the gospel story is a passion narrative with an extended introduction. And what Price meant by that is that in Mark, almost half of the story is tied up with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, with his arrest, his trial, his torture, and his execution. Almost half of the whole gospel story And unlike in John's version of the gospel, where Jesus wanders freely in and out of Jerusalem over a period of three years, in Mark, that trip to Jerusalem is a single, deadly event. Matthew and Luke aren't far from this, but nobody says it more succinctly than Mark. Mark's, measure is by a, Mark's gospel is by a wide measure the briefest of all of the accounts of the gospel. It's just 16 short chapters. Mark is straightforward and to the point, which is why when he tells stories together, we know he means them to be together. As Jesus journeys around the countryside, the end destination becomes increasingly clear. It's like when you're on a road trip and you start seeing the signs for where you're going. Well, that's what's happening in Mark's gospel narrative. As Jesus moves closer and closer to his passion, the signs become clearer and clearer of what will happen. The destination becomes clear, and so does the outcome. The Roman authority will not allow these challenges to their power to go unmet all of these healings these exorcisms all of this power makes Jesus a marked man and the clock is ticking maybe that's why I wanted to keep it all secret and yet even then he is relentless His answer to the relentless seeking of people in pain for healing is relentless faithfulness to God's call on him. That's what strikes me so much about Mark, the relentless journey to Jerusalem. He never wavers, he never backs down, he just keeps plodding ahead toward what he knows is coming. And it leaves us with the question, why? Why, knowing the suffering that awaited him, would he do all of that? And the answer to that question lies in knowing who God is. So often, the Old Testament is thought of as the story of our evolving understanding of who God is, and there is a certain amount of truth to that assessment. If one reads the various authors of the Hebrew scriptures, starting with the oldest authors that we have and moving forward to those that are written more recently, one does see the evolution of various perspectives on God's nature and being. And sometimes those perspectives certainly show us the development of the people's thought. But a book can never tell us exhaustively all of what we want to know about God. And that's why I prefer to read the Bible not as our evolving understanding of God, but rather as the unfolding of a love story. The Bible is the unfolding of God's love story with us. It is, at its heart, a relentless romance. We know who God is by what God has done. And what has God done? but to make covenant and to keep covenant with God's people. God's favor, God's love for the people has never been an earned commodity. That's what makes it grace. And throughout the Old Testament we read of God's grace for God's people. Now certainly there are seasons where God does seem to have despaired of the people, god weeps at times over the consequences of the actions of the israelites but even amidst all the weeping god never breaks covenant with them never does god abandon the people god's romance of god's people is a relentless love story and the thing is If we know that story, if we learn it and make it part of ourselves, of our identity, of our faith foundation, then nothing Jesus does should come as a surprise to us. Jesus's actions shouldn't surprise us if we put them in the context of what God has done. It's perfectly clear why Jesus would undertake the long, hard, deadly journey to Jerusalem. And it also shows why Jesus gives in to the relentless needs of the people who are following him. But wait, there's more. Just before where we started reading the story today, Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, was murdered. And what happens between where we started reading today and where we ended is hardly subtle. Jesus feeds 5,000 people, and then he walks on water to comfort his disciples. Without so much as a moment to mourn his cousin's death, Jesus is followed out into the desert, out into the wilderness, by needy people, all of whom seem to want something from him. And in compassion, seeing them, as the Bible says, like sheep without a shepherd. Knowing they are out in the middle of the desert, Jesus instructs his disciples to seat the people on the green grass so that he can feed them. So the disciples get all of the people who have followed Jesus out into the wilderness, into the dry desert place, to sit on the green grass in the desert. Do you remember back after his baptism, when the Spirit led him out into the wilderness where he was tempted? The wilderness desert is a desolate place. The Greek word is aramon. It practically sounds like what it is. Dried up of all life. For years, the church read this passage and just sort of glossed over that bit, that there's green grass in the desert green grass, where it's not supposed to be. But now we can't unnotice it, can we? Every time I see this story, the green grass jumps out at me. Because if we know who God is, what Jesus does shouldn't come as too much of a surprise. Like green grass springing up in the wilderness, He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. Everything can change so quickly. That's the terror of the wilderness. But it is also the good news of the gospel. Everything can change so quickly in the power of God. It must have seemed at times to those first disciples, those earliest followers of Jesus, like the demands of him, indeed the demands on all of them were relentless. Jesus does, after all, tell the disciples to feed the people. There's not really much subtlety of the message its there, is, it? is there? We're talking about seeing green, green grass out in the middle of the desert where there isn't supposed to be green grass. When you're out in the desert in the wilderness, there's something about seeing the green grass crop up there. You know it doesn't just happen. Ask anyone who's ever tried to grow a lawn. No, when we're out in the Aramon, out in the desert, out in the desolate place, the place that denotes fear, and we encounter green grass, we know something is at work. It reminds me of a favorite quotation of mine from Pascal. Comfort thyself, thou wouldst not be seeking me if I had not first sought thee. We're talking about a love story of God for what God has created. Not just the pretty stuff and the nice stuff. No, a love story that includes the needy, the difficult, all-consuming, never-ending, bad-smelling, take all you've got and ask for more kind of creation. We're talking about the love story of God that proclaims that those who mourn will be comforted. We're talking about God's love story that calls and indeed then sustains folks to be willing to go with people even out into the wilderness. And you know what the wilderness is. There to be told in no uncertain terms to feed God's people with nothing more than what it seems like we already have, a few loaves and a couple of fishes, and to rely on God's grace somehow to make it work. That call can be, no, actually, I'm sure, that, that call is relentless. But so is God's grace. So in the end, we might indeed rest on the green, green grass. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen.
1: Let us now affirm what we believe in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. God spreads a table of blessings before us. Let us express our gratitude by giving a portion of what has been given to us. of Jesus Christ and our God, we are no longer strangers and aliens, but citizens with the saints of the commonwealth of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. In Christ, we are joined together as a dwelling place for God. We pray for those who have been called or elected as leaders, that they may be guided by your voice and by the voices of their people. We pray for the pastors and teachers of the church, that they may faithfully tend and not scatter those entrusted to them. We pray for those who are poor and in need of assistance and for ourselves that we may tenderly care for them. We pray for the victims of war, of gun violence and of other forms of violence, that we may be good news for them both in word and in deed. We pray for the sick and infirm and those who are spiritually hungry, that we may be a message of compassion. Good Shepherd, Lord of Righteousness, bring us together through the cross of Christ and break down the dividing walls between us. Be our peace and by your Holy Spirit, renew our citizenship in your kingdom. Amen.
0: Friends, there is no question that the demands of life are at times relentless. Sometimes we joke on it, sometimes it really does push us to the edge. But in those moments, in every moment, the grace of God is always yet more relentless. Count on that, trust in it, and live your life in the peace that gives. And now the Lord bless you and keep you The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace both this day and forevermore. Amen.